we are digging into John chapter 3. This is exciting, um, and, uh, and Paul was right. This is uh, both a beautiful and a dangerous and a, uh, and a feel, seemingly well-known bit of God's Word, uh, and yet has got so much to say to us. Uh, let's, uh, let's pray now that I'll do a good job of unpacking it and that our hearts would hear God. Heavenly Father, Whew. let's take a moment to be with you now. Thanks that you love us. Thanks that you speak to us and that you listen to us. And even, even this silly guy at the front now talking to you, leading us to, towards you, 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 you listen to us together. How, how beautiful and kind you are. Father, please speak to us now, though, even through words that come from a weak human being. Father, we pray that in them we would hear you speak to us and that you would change our souls and give us life, we pray. Uh, this would be an afternoon giving us life. We ask it desperately, hopefully, knowing that you're the only source we can get it from. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, a uh, couple of weeks ago, Jesus was the life of the party. Last week, Jesus is the party pooper. And this week, we're starting to see Jesus getting a little bit sceptical about the people at the party. I don't know if you remember at the end of the, um, or the start of our reading today and at the end of our reading last week, lots of people are starting to come to trust in Jesus, but the feeling isn't mutual. Lots of people trusting in Jesus, not much Jesus trusting in those people. Why won't Jesus entrust himself to them? It's, a, it's an interesting question. Because they're doing the thing that John wants them to do, isn't it? I mean, isn't that what John says the whole point of my gospel is? I'm writing this gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And these people are coming and believing Jesus. Why is Jesus not entrusting himself to them? This is a contradiction almost in John's gospel. But when the Bible authors put little things that you think, huh, that almost seems a bit wrong to put them together, they're doing it deliberately. And they're wanting to draw our attention to something, to make us think and to teach us something important. Now, we're going to start to dig into that tonight, but... It's actually something that unfolds over the next few weeks, over the next few encounters. So feel free to you know, read ahead and, um, and, and start to see what that is. All right, now Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Jesus not entrusting himself to men because he knew what men were like. And then the start of our passage, and then comes a man. Notice that? Jesus doesn't entrust himself to men because he knows what men are like, and then comes a man at night. Why is he coming at night for? Especially when we've got mentions of darkness and wanting to stay in darkness because you've got sin in your heart at the end of the passage. Well, gives us some clues. But he comes to Jesus anyway. He comes to Jesus. And Nicodemus makes his opening play. Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs that you were doing if God were not with him. Interesting opening gambit. Starts out with we know. He's not asking, is he? He's telling He's not humbly entrusting himself to Jesus. It's almost more like he's handling Jesus. Have you ever had someone do that to you? Almost like the way that they address you or the way that they discover your job or something like that, all of a sudden they put you in this box, they've got you in a category, and like, oh, okay, yeah, you're that, you're that person. And, and it helps people get a handle on someone, and it's almost like here, Nicodemus is trying to categorize and control Jesus as you're a teacher of good things. And we know you're from God, sure, sure, sure. But we're the ones in control. We're the ones telling you what's what. Now, it's obvious that he thinks this is a generous box that he's put Jesus in. He, he, he's not putting Jesus down. He thinks he's give, controlling Jesus with, with flattery, with honour. 
No one could perform the signs that you're doing if God wasn't with him. So generous of you, Nicodemus. So flattering. But I think he bid too low. Don't you think? And there's almost this air of Jesus sort of, oh, you think you know me, do you? Almost in the back of the, of the, the unspoken air. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, functionally, he says, mate, you can't see me at all. You can't. See, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. You think you know me, but you don't have the necessary, like, sense, sight, smell. You don't have the sense that you need to perceive who I am. You need to be a whole different person to do that. You need to be born again, which I imagine rattled Nick a little bit. Now, the, the word that gets translated again in some Bibles, um, here can mean either again or it can mean from above. I don't know if you knew that, heard that before. It can mean born again or it can mean born from above, which sort of makes sense with some of the things that Jesus says later. And it's hard to know what Nick's thinking. If, if Nick's thinking that this is about being born again or born from above, like he, or, and if he's just being sarcastic when he gives the whole, oh, maybe you could just stick the baby back in, that's not going to work. Maybe he doesn't really done a lot of gynecology. But this, he, he's sort of really confused by this thinking, that can't be possible, is it? And Jesus says, I don't mean something physical. I'm talking about a spiritual renewal, something that happens to the soul. Something that you can't even see happening, Nick. You can't see it because you haven't had it happen. The Holy Spirit will go around doing this stuff and you might never know. Now, what's interesting as Jesus goes on in verse 7 and then in verse 10, in these two different replies to Nicodemus, Nicodemus was supposed to have got this already in some way, wasn't he? Like, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't get this? At least he shouldn't be shocked when Jesus mentions it. So, so what, what could he be referring to? Like, like what Old Testament passage, what, 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 what sort of previous promise should he have known about that Jesus was referring to? Now, it's not like, there's not an easy direct one, but I reckon if I'm right about this, oh, can you flick me to, um, oh, sweet, we should be uh, somewhere here in John. Actually, no, can you get me to the Ezekiel 36 bit? That should be a bit later, just after this one. You guys are so good there. So you get your job back. Well done. I'll restore your pay. Um, Therefore, so this, is, so this is Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel has basically come to a point in the Old Testament history after the kings, after, like late, later, later in the time of, of the kings, and, and it's come to a point where God's just saying, look, you guys can't even say sorry. You can't even lie straight in bed. You can't even say sorry and mean it. I don't think that this is going to work out between us, you and me. It's like dark. This is, you know, Old Testament prophets. Like, you know, this is as fire and brimstone, but almost like it's past threats and fire and brimstone. It's just like, ah, it's just not going to work. And it gets to this. God gets to this. Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It's not for your sake. No, we're well beyond doing it because you guys have been able to say sorry properly. It's not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. You, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I'll gather you from all the countries. I'll bring you back into your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you. You need to be born of the water and spirit. I'll clean, sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. 
I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. See, in this passage, God brings new life through water and spirit. And it's quite stark because the very next chapter, um, he sort of zaps Ezekiel out and sticks him in a valley. And he looks down at the valley and it's just full of dry bones, just dead bones. It's just a symbol of the symbol of the nation of Israel. They're just dead. And he says to Ezekiel, hey, hey, can I, can, can these bones ever live again? And Ezekiel very intelligently says, uh, you know, God, <laughs> good answer, smart guy. And then the bones start rattling and, and, and they, they, they come back to life. Flesh comes on the bones and all of a sudden, and there's this great picture of something that should not be possible, can't happen, can't be conceived of happening, not real, must be fantasy land, and then it happens anyway. And that's what it's going to be like when God comes and his Holy Spirit comes. But Nicodemus thinks that all he's got to do is be a teacher. That's all Jesus has to do. That's all he's got to do. Just be a teacher. We'll just make people a bit better. And, and Jesus is saying, no, 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 I don't think, no, you don't understand. Why didn't you understand what the prophet was saying when he, when he told you what kind of renovation of a human being was needed here? You're the teacher of God's people and you didn't understand? You, th you think that I could come and just be a teacher and make anything any better? Let's give you some new morals, some new tips, seven steps of highly effective Jewish people? Like, it's... it's... And I think the other thing with Nicodemus is that his theology generally, the theology of the Pharisees, they're expecting a, a last day resurrection. They're expecting a, a you know, a, a heaven. But they figured that basically all the Jews would get in because they were God's people. I mean, in a way, it's probably what a lot of people who have got some connection with Christianity think, but who haven't actually done any business with God themselves. You know, I go to church regularly, Christmas and Easter, that's regular every single year. Uh, regular is clockwork. And I tick Christian on the census. Well, not so much these days. And me and the big guy are good. But Jesus reimagines the plight of the Jews in the light of the Old Testament scripture, as he should have. There's no you're all good by default in Ezekiel. And Jesus realized that. And Nicodemus should have gotten that. He should have understood the trajectory of the story. That for humanity to reconnect with God in the deepest way doesn't matter. Like getting a bit better, getting a lot better wouldn't help. A whole new personhood has to come into play. And Nicodemus can't believe that that's possible. Like, and I guess that's the thing. Like maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe you've actually tried to get better because of the Bible even, maybe. Try to, to kick a sinful habit or something. And you, you, you're kind of beaten down and a bit like, look, the only hope I've got is to get a little bit better. Pr proper big change is never going to happen to me. Is that you? You just lost hope that you'll ever really be different. See, Nicodemus can't, he, how could this be? How could, literally, he says, how can these things come to be in the same words of chapter one of creation, things coming to be? How could, how could that come to be? How could a whole new person? I can't see that. 
You see, Nick seems to have underestimated the gravity of the problem, therefore grossly underestimated what would be required in response, I can just do a bit of teaching, or even what is possible in response. Grossly underestimated God. Now, in my growth group, I think there's a lot of graciousness. They're delightful. And they're all feeling a bit sorry for Nick. They're like, oh, come on, Coots, you're being a bit harsh. He's like, he's, he's doing pretty good. And that's fair enough. Like, I think that's a, oh, there's a great graciousness of heart there. Um, but this guy is a preacher. He's a lecturer. He's a mentor and a trainer. It's his job to help people connect with God. And all he was about, and this is the school of the Pharisees, isn't it? It's about being a little bit better, a little bit tighter, keep the rules a little bit more. And Jesus says here that what is required to enter the kingdom, what to even see the kingdom, even recognize that there's something good going on here, is something far more radical than that. It involves heart-level change. Not just turning over a new leaf, helping a little old lady across the street. Now look, if this is so big and so important, it's probably worth asking the question, how would I know if this had happened to me? How would I know? Because it's supposed to be really big. Well, Jesus tells us here, he says, you can't see it directly, but you can notice its effects. The spirit is like the wind. Now, yesterday, well, sort of more like last night and this morning, I noticed the effects of the wind. <laughs> I'm looking out and I live, you know, the trees are all around my house and they are moving at angles that I didn't think sort of they could bend. And, and, and everything around me is just shaking and the, the house, I'm really realising where all the drafts are in the house. Uh, I know exactly where they are now. I know where they come in because I can hear it. I didn't just feel I can hear it. I couldn't see any of the wind, but I can see its effects. I see in you guys the effects of the gospel. I see you guys coming to Jesus when you don't think you're worthy. I see amongst you guys faithful service when you're tired and it's hard, but you know someone else needs something. Uh, we, were at, we were at our next gen meeting, and uh, I won't use his name to, um, I won't use his name, I won't embarrass him, but there's a, a guy there, and we were talking about, oh, why are you here? And he said, well, I've been a Christian for just a short period of time, and uh, I want to know how I can love the young people in our congregation. What, what am I supposed to do? Whew. You can't see the Spirit working directly, but boy, can you see its effects. All right. Now, if rabbi is the right word for Jesus, Jesus' rabbiing is very different to that of the Pharisee. The Pharisee, here he, he taught theology, morality. And what did Jesus come to do? Let's have a look down at the sort of the later part, the part where it's sort of more um, Jesus' chat, but then also John's commentary on Jesus' chat from 16 onwards. Verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. What did Jesus come to do? Well, apparently get hoisted up on a pole like a snake. Uh, it's a bit weird. What on earth does this mean? Where does it come from? Uh, let's go back. If you're a Jew, there's a story that you knew from Jewish Sunday school, right? Synagogue school, Saturday school, you were a kid. This might have even been one of your favorites because it had snakes in it, right? You're loving this. Any kids here? Oh, adults here like snakes? There's a couple, there's a couple, yeah, nice. I had a friend in uh, Brisbane who had a whole bunch of snakes. It was really, really cool. Um, and, you know, they, they could, you know, he just have one sort of sitting on his laptop, you know, just hanging off at the top of the screen while he's typing or whatever, or, or the larger one, you know, hugging him to death. It's great. Um, 
And on the journey to the promised land, Israel became, so this is, this is right at the back of the start of the story where God was going to choose Israel to save the world through them. Uh, and so he's bringing them into the land that he's got for them. And he'd been giving them manna, you know, this, this sort of food from the sky and quail food from the sky and water from rocks and stuff. And this miraculous provision, but they didn't think it was good enough. They started to complain. And so God sends snakes, snakes on a plane. They're on a plane. So you like that. See, and these the snakes started biting people, and people are dying. And everyone else who's not dying is freaking out, as you, as you would be. And so they go to Moses, their leader, the one who's their link to God, and they beg him to pray for them, and, and he does. And God says, oh, what I want you to do, put a snake on a pole and look up at it. And in fact, if you remember some of the old medical signals, uh, medical symbols, sorry, you know, the two snakes uh, up on the pole, that's, 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 that comes from this story. Look up and live, is the message. Look up. And if they do, even if they've been bitten, they will live. See, it's interesting, not just stopping the snakes, but you're stuffed if you've been bitten already. Even if it's bitten you, you can look up and you'll live. Jesus didn't come to teach you to be a better person, to preach good morals, to help you become more successful. You've already been bitten by the snake of sin, as it were, all of us. Sin's got humanity. Its poison is running in our collective, well, not veins, apparently it's lymph, you know, lymphatic system, but it's, it's in the body, right? Education will not solve humanity's problems, neither will science. Time is marking towards judgment and the poison is taking hold. But if you look up at the sun, see, Jesus is saying, I'm like that snake. And when I get hoisted up on that cross, I'm going to take away the poison. Look up at the sun and you will live. It seems such a small thing to do. Almost, it, it, in fact, in the Old Testament, you must have, must have almost thought Moses was silly. I'll look up at the snake and I won't die from the snake poison bite. Like, seriously, that's, that's some really bad medicine right there. But it's, 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 it's just something about God where there's a, there's a, it, it requires nothing from you but to trust in the thing that he's provided for you. It seems so small, such a nothing. Look on Jesus. But it recognizes the depth of the problem. See, someone had to die and give everyone new life in order to solve this sin problem. Nicodemus didn't recognize the size of the problem. The poison is killing people, and he's still back telling people, don't touch the snakes. Oh, stay away from the snakes. Stay away from the snakes. They've already been bitten, Nick. You teaching them and acting as if that's all they need is making the situation worse. It's like misinformation in a pandemic, right? He didn't recognize the king. But, I mean, how could Nick have? He was still in darkness. Now, for the Christians here, my question to you is, for people who are following Jesus, my question is, are you a regular confessor of sin and requester of forgiveness? Like, is that your primary nature of your prayers? Because it's the primary thing that you need. Like, of course, you want to to pray to grow in godliness. I want to pray to put to death sins that we've confessed to each other and all this sort of stuff. We'll even talk about that at the end of this talk. But but what I really need is forgiveness. Because just renovating me isn't going to sort things out. But I wonder if my prayers actually reveal to me that I actually think if I just get a little bit better, I'll I'll be sorted out. But it's not true. 
prayer lives reveal what we think will save us, let's pray for forgiveness. Let's look to the Son who's been lifted up on a cross for us. We get to the beautiful one. We get to the good verse. For God so loved the world. Come on, say it, say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. How good is that? Now, who here has got the Sunday school version in their head, which is God loved the world so much that, that, that that's what you think it means or that's what you've always been taught it means? Like some people might be that. Other people might be like the, no, 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 no. We've looked at the Greek grammar and we can tell you this fancy thing. It's not that God loved the world so much. It's that this is how he loved the world. That's what the so means. It's he loved the world in this way. Do you get the difference? One's about the intensity of the love. The other one's about the method, that the way that he went about doing the loving. Well, I am here to save you both because you can keep your Sunday school version, but also you can keep your grammatically correct version because it clearly, very clearly means both. The first, the so does mean, uh, like literally it means thisly. Thisly, God loved the world. This is how he did it. But then there's a, a little verb, like it's like a so that, he had to die to do it. And when you put them together, it actually has the same, it has the effect of both. This is how he did it. My good, do you realise like that was how he did it? This is the, this is the lengths that he went to to do it? And, it? and it puts them together in that way. God so loved the world in such a way that he had to give his only one and only son to do it. See, God's not underestimating the predicament here. He's not sitting here asking you at Soul Church to just be a little bit better and then, we'll, then, then I'll be able to work with you. Then you'll be fine. Just look, I'm, I'm just looking at you last week, you know, James, Benjamin, you guys in the front row, and look, if just, just get up a little bit earlier, a little bit more prayers, and, and then we'll be okay. The extreme nature of the method tells you that that's, that's not going to be the solution. And it also has implications for the strength of the love that he has for you. Now, secondly, it's worth noting, it's the world that God loves here. God so loved the world. That's actually a really strong statement, especially in the Gospel of John. The world in the Gospel of John means like the bad guy world, the world that's against God. It's sort of almost like a, sort of like a, a catch-all for the bad stuff in the world. We're told not to love the things of the world in John's Gospel. It's what we want not to love ourselves. And yet God in his perfection cares even for the humanity that spits in his face here. The degree, the surprising depth of God's love for a surprising recipient is what God is trying to get at here. And here we see the intentionality of God. We see his purpose. We understand the, the nature of Jesus' mission, of the Christ event, the, the, his his, his coming to earth, his living, his dying, his rising, his, his uh, ascending. God's purpose is to rescue, to forgive, to love, and to give life. Now, the question for you is how are you going to respond? How are you going to respond to the fact that Jesus says here, you've got darkness in your heart such that if God did something among you, you wouldn't even be able to tell unless God gave you new birth to see it. It's kind of insulting. Do you think of yourself as, I could, I could see if something really good was going on and there was a spiritual, spirituality amongst people. God's like, no, nah, sorry. Not unless I give it to you. How are you going to respond? Will you pretend that your problem is small and that it can be fixed with some behavior modification? A bit of Pharisaic minimization like Nicodemus. Oh, just avoid the snakes that I've already been, already been bitten of by so many. 
Or, well, maybe if you're a Christian. Well, actually, either way. Either way, this could be be for Christians or non-Christians now, think about it. Do you prefer not to be exposed by this light that's coming? Or do you prefer to, to hide and to not expose yourself? I know that I do. Now, we hide for two reasons. Like, we might hide because of our sin and not wanting to be shamed out. And that's what we're talking about here. And sometimes we might also think of, oh, but I'm hiding because of other people's sin. And, and, and I don't want to reveal myself because other people are, are going to mistreat me. But the thing is, God is not like that. You don't have an excuse to hide your true self from God, to not confess your sin, because God is not like people. We've just seen that he is willing to take the punishment for your sin and not take it out on you. His love is ridiculous. You've just read of his heart for you. He's not harsh, judgmental, picky. He's coming here to really ridiculously inconvenience himself in order to be connected with you again. Don't, that's not an excuse to hide from God. Don't think he's going to mistreat you. Mostly, we hide from God because we know that our deeds are actually evil. What could be so good that you'd be wanting to, you'd so want to hold on to it and stay in the darkness? So to come into these light and be seen. So this is the beautiful thing. New birth not only allows us the power to see what God is really doing in Jesus in the spirit, it allows us to really be seen as well. It allows you the safety to be seen. We don't live by perfection. We live by being seen by God and yet loved. Uh, let me just read the last couple of verses here. Everyone who, hate, who does evil hates the light, will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be, be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. It doesn't, did you notice it doesn't say everyone who does evil, well, they stay in the dark because they don't want to be seen. And everyone who does perfect goes into the light where they can be seen that they've done everything right. No, those who know God come into the light. So that everything can be seen that they've done this with God. Sure, they stumble along the way. Sure, they've sinned, but they're with God. They love God. They want to be with God. They've lived in Him. They've lived with Him. They've, they've attempted to put their sin to death with and in Him. This is, this is a call to, to leave the darkness and to be a sinner with God walking in light. Now, look, if, if you don't know Jesus, I'm telling you, that's a good space to be. It's scary because you get known. But it's beautiful because you'll be known. And it's scary because you'll be seen. And, and yet the joy of being with God and being loved and knowing that your performance will not take away the love because Jesus', Jesus solution is so radical that the teacher of Israel didn't even think it made any sense it was possible. Point of tonight. Humans need life from the Holy Spirit. They need new birth from above to be able to even see God's kingdom. Without that regeneration, we will stay in the darkness, neither seeing God nor being seen by him. If, you're not, if you don't know Jesus, can I invite you to, 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 to walk into the light tonight? Come and talk to me afterwards. We'll pray. You can go to God and you can know that, he, you can know that your sins are gone. You need the forgiveness and washing clean that God promised thousands of years ago and, and now Jesus offers. You need to look up to that one who is lifted up and live. And if you do know Jesus, could I encourage you to, to walk with God? 
to live with God, practice his presence. You're never actually alone if you're a Christian. Jesus is always there with you. So why don't you train your subjective mind's eye of what's going on to recognize the truth and live what a number of Christian brothers throughout the centuries have called practicing the presence of God, walking with him, walking with a sense that he is there with you, his loving, fatherly, joyful presence. Like a dad helping you, cheering you on as you go about trying to honor him in your life. Not freaking out, oh my goodness, I'll just get to the next level and dad will want to spend time with me. I'll just, just fix that up in life first. But the dad who's fixed it up already for us in his son, Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is hard to come to you. It is hard to confess our sin. It is much easier to put our heads down and work and pretend that the snake bites aren't so bad. But Father, they are. God, this week I've done enough to, goodness knows what I've done enough to deserve. And yet your spirit has refreshed so many of our hearts that has started to make its presence seen in our actions and our love has enabled us to see you and to be seen by you. Father, we just ask for those of us here who are thinking about maybe, maybe committing to Jesus, maybe, are, maybe looking to him and asking him to forgive them. Father, please let them know that we are with them and we pray, Lord, that they may do so tonight and that, so that we can have a big party over it. And Father, we also ask for those of us who are falling back into that practical Pharisaism, that our prayers would be for forgiveness and that our life will be lived in your presence, in your light, rather than um, trying to earn back your favour and nitpick over our failings. Father, help us to recognise the gravity of the problem so that we can enjoy the ridiculous generosity of your solution. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.